Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. Most of you guys know Brandon, but Brandon, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? It's surreal to be back here. So I know some of you really well, some of you not so well, and some of you I don't know at all. It's been a wild journey this last year. But a few of you have asked, like, Brandon, when are you going to speak again? And I've told you what my therapist told me. Because in a session, I said something like, I don't know if I'll ever speak again. He goes, you will when you have something to say. And I have something to say, I guess. So the time has come. But I've been a pastor for 10 years. I have a doctorate in the New Testament. I've devoted my adult life to studying the Bible, to caring for people in the church. I've had kind of a winding journey. And so to be back is, I don't know, special. It being asked got me in the feels, the heart. And so I'm excited to share this because it's been an important issue, uh, like was talked about last week. It was a long time coming, this uh, change in beliefs. And it's cost us a lot. I had someone uh, who was really close to me say, Brandon, are you going to throw away a whole career over this one issue? And that hurt because it wasn't just one issue. This isn't like detached from real human beings living lives and trying to navigate their faith and love and be able to be who God has designed them to be. It was far more of a real person embodied issue, not just some abstract belief from the Bible. But it was also a larger issue than that. It was my whole journey in studying the Bible that led me to see more complexity where I had once seen simplicity to see a lot more nuance where I had once seen black and white. And so my journey began over a decade ago. And then as we came to this topic, studied it more and more and just realized things aren't as simple as I once thought they were. And because of this is a human issue, it was worth it to explore this to the fullest of my capabilities. So that's what we're going to get into today. And before we do get into it, I, I want to make a quick caveat of something similar that Christine had said uh, last week. I'm probably going to say something wrong, you know? <laughs> Me too. I mean, I say wrong things. I do wrong things. Uh, I'm not perfect. And so the purpose of today's sermon is to go through these texts and discuss on how we concluded on how to handle them. Additionally, we're not trying to change anybody's mind. Neither Brandon or I really believe in the debate style as an effective way of getting someone to change their mind. We both held traditional views for the majority of our Christian lives, which was uh, against same-sex marriage and Mm same-sex activities. And we're going to kind of get into the history of how we changed our mind as we're going through these texts, but I mean, it, years, years and years and years did I change my mind. So not at all is this it, it all like a, a call out on anybody or saying, oh, you guys need to believe this. Um, that's not how we behave at Kindred. The only thing that we do ask is that we're respectful of other people's views. We believe in this concept of epistemological humility at Kindred, and that's how do you know what you know? And, and what we know is that at humans, we're fallible, we make mistakes, and so we need to be loving and respecting and have mercy not only for ourselves, but for other people, and also know that God's grace extends to us even when we make mistakes. So let's get into it. Brandon, what caused you to change your mind on this issue? Education screwed me up. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I had preached the opposite as a pastor, and it wasn't like I hadn't done my homework, but I, I think I missed the forest for the trees. I'm pretty sure last week gave the history of how Kindred started, but I mean, it was like effectively a book club. The original founders, as they were exploring what they believed on this issue, it was kind of like, go to Brandon to study, and he'll set you straight. And I, I failed in that. But what we did is engaged in educational study. It wasn't like, okay, hey, you guys are questioning things. Let's uh, make sure that you land on the right position. It was, all right, let's look at the evidence. So we read thousands of pages. We read all the source texts that relate to homosexuality or any other kind of non-heterosexual sexual activity from the entire Roman imperial period, plus a lot of the Greek literature. We were reading these first century authors and what they thought and seeing the complexities of human sexuality that were just as evident 
confident then as they are today. We read secondary literature, you know, people's opinions on what the Bible says, what uh, was going on in the first century. I mean, we read thousands of pages, and throughout that process, my views changed to the point where it was like I couldn't in good conscience say what I had formerly said, teach what I formerly taught. That was I, I just couldn't go back to that because I'd been exposed to too much of the evidence. The path is forward. There is a new understanding, and the church is, I think, starting to express that. It wasn't that I didn't take the Bible seriously. It's because I took it seriously that my views changed. Yeah, it's funny because likewise for me, at the beginning of my realization that very, very smart people, this is when I started attending school, really, really smart theologians had different views than I had. And that was the first moment where I realized like, wow, I don't have, nor does my church or my church's views, have the truth in their hands really, really tightly. It was through reading different authors on not even discussions on necessarily um, homosexuality in the church, but, you know, how God knows what he knows and when. So predestination and all that stuff. I got really into that and realized, man, there's some really smart authors that are way smarter than me that do not agree with me. I had to contend with that, and that was kind of the first thing that caused me to realize, like, I should be flexible and understand that maybe I don't see everything correctly. So, yeah, there's like a humility that comes with study. Yeah, because you see all these these really smart authors or even teachers yeah. and you realize that they hold different views than you and um, even, you know, even classmates and peers. And you realize like, wow, you know, yeah. I, I, I come to this conclusion this way, but don't, right. <laughs> I don't know. I, to, to hold it so closely in my hands and act like I know for sure 100% on some issues is just, uh, you realize pretty quickly how foolish that is. 24-year-old Brandon was so certain about everything. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's dead. God killed him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, within that same question, how did your views on the Bible change? Yeah, I mean, started with a sense of it, it's authoritative, so it's God's Word communicated to us that guides our lives, which I still agree with. But the richness and complexity of the Bible was opened up to where it was no longer just this single book that was spoken by God through humans as if they were robots that then directly applied to our lives today. They're just going through historical linguistic studies. It is just way more complex. It's written over the course of a millennium from dozens of authors, some of whom we don't know, written in different languages. There's different literary genres. It is just a library of books that has, I think, supernatural effectiveness, but it's not as simple as some other holy texts that are like high-velocity sermons from the deity just straight to the people. It, mm -hmm. it What really opened up for me was the human side of the Bible. Like You have these real human beings in time past writing books that they had no idea would end up in what we call the Bible. They're writing letters to the churches that they're pastoring. They're writing poetry. And then to think several thousand years later, there would be people from a faraway culture not speaking a language that they could even consider of yep. singing what they had written in poetry or, or reciting the letters that they had written to effectively in a house church. The human side of the Bible is what showed me God's power because they had no idea what they were doing at the time. And then all of a sudden, there's this unified story told over centuries that was amazing to me. But the complexities that that unlocks is like, okay, so we just can't take it as simply as we once did. I couldn't personally do that. And because there's so much interpretation that's enabled with how complex it is, it just really softened the certainty that I had once held. I still mm. hold the Bible in very high esteem. It has been transformative in my life, something I've devoted my life to studying, mm -hmm. but I just don't see it as simply as I once did. Yeah, I feel like the application of systematic theology across the Bible just doesn't function once you really start getting into the texts and mm. the different genres and seeing how views in the Bible change throughout history, even as you're going from early Old Testament within the Pentateuch and then later in the Old Testament, there's changes going on and then obviously within the New Testament. My first exposure to the 
the Bible was in church, I think, like most people. Um, in literal translations, were locked behind the threat that if I changed my view, then God's grace wasn't going to be sufficient for me. That I had to have the correct beliefs for God to love me, and that if I changed any of those beliefs or had any wrong beliefs, then therefore God's grace was not sufficient for me. You know, I, I went to school because I wanted to be right. I had this thought that I had to be right on these issues, and I just realized in that process of being in school and, and studying that it was just much more complicated than I originally thought, and that God's grace ultimately does extend if I didn't get everything right, and that allowed me to explore different areas and hold issues like originally I thought predestination was such an important issue. Hold that openly and say, well, I don't know how God interacts with time. I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> but I thought that that was something I needed to know. So, the clobber passages are the six to seven texts in the Bible that involve some kind of same-sex act and are used against sexual minorities as well. The traditional views utilize a lot of these verses to say, here you go, this is the reason why same-sex attracted people should not only repent, but should never engage in same-sex activities. Some people would even go as far as to say that those thoughts and ideas themselves are inherently sinful. Just the fact that these six or seven, depending on how you count them, verses are pulled out of context and then weaponized against people is the problem. They are couched within larger contexts, both within their immediate section, within their immediate book, within their testament, within the Bible, within the story God is weaving within humanity. So when they're extracted, isolated, and then used against people, I think that is just a gross misuse of the text. And it is, I would say today, almost identical to what was happening in the 19th century with slavery. If the Bible's clear on anything, it's the legitimacy of slavery. And this is what was happening back in the Civil War period, where you would have pastors like, hey, look, the Bible is super clear here in this one verse. And people would be like, yeah, I mean, how do we argue with that? And these pastors would say, well, look, all these people with their fancy learning, trying to twist God's word with their reasoning and sophistication, and they're using the same arguments you use today because they're like, look, it's so clear. Slaves submit to your masters. Look at all these biblical heroes who have slaves. Case closed. But now our point in history, we look back and go, well, there's a little more to it than that. And I'd say we're at that same kind of situation in church history where there are those that are like, hey, look, it's so clear. Here's Leviticus. Here's Romans 1. So clear. Hopefully it's not 150, 60 years later that we're like, hey, that seems silly. But that's kind of what this church is trying to help accomplish is show it's not that simple. These verses shouldn't be isolated from their context and used against people because that, I think, opposes the very heart of God. I love that. So let's get into the first one. So Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, we don't have to spend much time on this. (laughs) These passages. First two are pretty fast. I mean, because it's rape. This is Sodom and Gomorrah, and then also Judges 19 has a similar narrative. In Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot enters the cities, and he has two angels with him, and the people of Sodom are like, hey, those men who you brought with you, let us have sex with them. I mean, like, can we at least agree that that's not the same thing as we're talking about today? Like, it's like rape is wrong. These passages are not reliable for hinting at a biblical sexual ethic, and even there's more problems, because Lot's like, no, don't do this horrible thing to these two men I just met. Here, have my daughters instead. And he's like a hero in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of problems going on. For those of you that are like, hey, what do we do with Sodom? Sodom and Gomorrah, it is just not talking about anything close to loving same-sex sexual activity. It's rape. And it's so often, right, that's one of the applications. There's a comparison to same-sex activities or areas, cities, like comparing San Francisco to Sodom and Gomorrah or something like that. Like God Uh, rains down his judgment. When New Orleans was flattened by Katrina, it's like, that's God's judgment. That's God's judgment, yeah. You know, it's like an appeal to Sodom and Gomorrah is God acting against the wickedness of a city. Correct. So just going to read this from Ezekiel real quick, because Ezekiel does explain a little bit about kind of what's going on. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty 
and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So this whole concept additionally, that not only is it obviously rape, and I kind of want to go into that a little bit. So I always, since I read the Bible literally as a child and thought that that was an example of why homosexuality was bad and didn't have context for that, it was when I first heard Timothy Keller speak about this in a podcast. Um, and he has a traditional view, so he's he's not affirming. But he points out that this section, it's about rape and subjugation and about humiliation. And so, so much of the context of same-sex male activities was really about subjugating domination and humiliation, and especially humiliating a foreigner. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to note that kind of within there. Those passages should just be stricken from the conversation. They're not talking about the same thing. But this next one gets brought up a lot. So we have the text, uh, Leviticus 18.22, and then chapter 20 also has, you know, the death penalty for what's described here. This one is one that is isolated from its context. There's a lot of uncertainty as to what exactly is being talked about here. It could be referring to pagan sexual rituals of the surrounding cultures. I mean, the verse that precedes this is don't sacrifice your kids to Moloch. And the one that comes right after it is don't engage in bestiality, basically. Those are pagan sexual rituals. And this verse right here is couched within that. And so the larger trajectory of the Torah, which was God's instruction to his chosen people, Israel, was don't be like the surrounding nations. You're going to live in a way that shows you as my distinct people. And there's a lot of things that were what we would consider cultural or uh, ritualistic in terms of practices and stuff. So what's being prohibited here? Well, could be engaging in pagan sexual rituals like the neighbors. It could also be because this larger section includes a lot of familial sexual relationships, like don't have your father's wife, don't sleep with your sister, things like that, that this could be referring to family members. Men, don't sleep with men in your family. It's really unclear there. But, and I think this is the larger issue, you can't pick and choose which verses from Leviticus to say stand for all time and other ones that don't. And this is, I mean, so commonly pointed out the hypocrisy of going, say, to Leviticus 18.22 and going, God is against homosexuality. And then going, well, you wear clothes with two different fibers. You just go down the list of things related to food and clothing and cultural practices that we don't obey today. And so it gets really sticky to then say, well, this one stands the test of time, but the other ones don't. Because Jesus comes and he fulfills the Torah. He's like, I have brought it to its completion. And now there is a new transformed law of Christ that Christians are under that is governed by love. It is no longer culturally defined like it was. Yeah, we would all be dead if yeah. we lived under the Levitical priesthood. So yeah. I think that's just an important point for everyone to recognize. Like, like we would all be dead. Violating sure. the Sabbath yeah. gets the death penalty. Being a disobedient son, where I'm like, yeah, which I've never done. Yeah. Not me. But no, seriously, yeah, it's like, <laughs> that's a problem. There is no good way to split up Levitical law. And a lot of theologians have tried to do that. And I think that's fine that they're making those decisions, but they are making decisions as to, okay, we're going to keep this section of Leviticus and we're going to remove this section of Leviticus. If we're going to apply Levitical law, you can split up in a couple different categories, but ultimately you're picking and choosing at that point. You're creating the categories, which ones are okay and which ones are not okay. There is no definitive area within the New Testament, which you can be like, well, since Jesus says this, then we can include this section of Levitical law and certainly not Paul. Yeah. Paul tells his audience in Galatians, like, oh, you want to convince others to keep this portion of the law? You got to keep the whole thing. You know that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He really turns it on them. Yeah. Galatians is a great example. So the next text we're going to be going into is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1, 10. This is a really, really fascinating section. And this is kind of where it starts to heat up. This is kind of level three, if you will. So yeah, because this is one that an intelligent biblical interpreter would go, okay, forget the Old Testament. We'll just leave that out. But here's the New Testament. And this one's pretty clear. I even had someone very close to me say, I don't know, Brandon, I, you know, I read this and it's just very clear. And the part of me is like, I don't want to be a jerk by saying like education and like understanding the Greek is going to change it, you know, because it seems like it's like a condescension, like, well, you don't know the Greek. 
but you have to know the Greek. <laughs> I mean, what do we, yeah, we have the first Corinthians passage up here. It says men who practice homosexuality, which is anachronistic because they didn't have the category for orientation like we do. But really behind it, it's two Greek terms and they're really hard to translate. You have malakos, which is translated soft, fine clothing. It could be effeminate, but it's just here without any further clarification. So it's like, what is it? But then arsenikoites is in here, which is a Greek term that Paul invented. And Rob's going to get into that a little bit, but there's no prior history of this term until it appears in this text. It could be the mashup of arson, which is male, and koites, which is bed. So it's like male bedders. Those two terms are used to translate the Leviticus passes we just looked at when it was translated into Greek. So it's like, yeah, maybe Paul's hearkening back to that. But then again, it's really unclear as what Leviticus is talking about. And is Paul talking about maybe something like rape, which some of the translations have indicated some sort of perversion or domination type same-sex sexual activity. Same with Malakos. There's just not enough contextual evidence to be very certain on this. The NIV and the ESV, which are common modern translations, take those two terms and make it one general concept. Other translations will define it in two different ways. And the history of interpretation is varied. There are different translations for this because it's really hard to do that. Like how translators work is they look at a word in its context and go, okay, this is what it seemed to mean. And then this is an English equivalent. And with these terms, it's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. For sure. Another person that holds a traditional view, Gordon Fee, very well-respected theologian, he holds a traditional view, but finds these verses insufficient for arguing the traditional view due to the fact that this word arsenikoitai, arsenikoites, is a word that is created. And so it's really hard to identify what Paul is meaning because there is no definition within this verse or within the section to identify what he's actually talking about. So he actually creates the word. It's a compound word. We have to keep in mind when we make compound words, they can mean something similar or they can mean something very different. For example, you have lady killer, butterfly. You have a lot of different compound compound words, when you take two words and you put them together, it's not necessarily the same definition that you would think it is. And that's why people like Gordon Fee, who are very well respected, would not go to this section to argue the traditional view. Um, and that was my personal issue with this, as I looked into this more and kept stewing on this and looking at the different contexts and doing that translation work. I was like, I can't be certain on this. Why would I hinge people's lives on the ambiguous translation of these terms? It seemed arrogant to be like, well, no, it's crystal clear. It's not. Yeah. And it really affects people. So mm -hmm. maybe opt for inclusion rather than exclusion because of the uncertainty here. Definitely. The phrase is just so sparsely used. It's used a handful of other times as far as people like copying and pasting what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians. And so it's really hard to identify what that phrase would have meant to the common people. Mm -hmm. I think there's good arguments and we'll be going into the historical contextual arguments when we get into Romans. Uh, but I think there's really good arguments that the majority of what people would have thought as same-sex relationships would be considered pederasty today or would be considered rape today. And mm -hmm. so that may be an explanation too of what Paul was thinking of when he wrote that. Yep. Uh, ultimately, the phrase lacks enough substance to definitively conclude Paul's thoughts on homosexuality. So, we're going to get into Romans 1 right now. Romans 1 is a more difficult verse to contend with the given language. Brandon, do you want to kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah, we have the verses up here. You have general same-sex activity language. A Greek term for male, arson, and then thelus, which is female. So, it's emphasizing anatomy versus, say, man and woman emphasizing gender. And so, Paul, in talking about exchanging natural relations with the 
opposite sex for relations of the same sex. He does it both for women and for men, but in emphasizing the anatomy, there is something about the parts being described here. There's still a level of interpretation. Like, it doesn't say sex. It's terms for natural relations, which there's debate over what that means. Being inflamed with passion, it's like, well, is that love? Or is that being so overdriven by the sexual desire that you're doing things that are destructive? I mean, again, it's not that clear, but Mm -hmm. I would say the language lends itself towards same-sex activity of any kind. He's being very general. He's not specifying it. And this was a passage that tripped me up the most because it's like, it doesn't matter if there were loving relationships in the ancient world. Paul's just against all of it. And I really got stuck there. And I'll give you my interpretation of this. Rob has stuff to say on the context here, but I had the watershed moment where my opinion on this passage changed. I was like, oh, I missed the forest for the trees. So there's two possible routes that you can go down. Brandon is going to go into kind of a rhetorical route. I'm going to be discussing the historical contextual route. So a vision of homosexuality in ancient Rome was different from our modern thoughts of homosexuality. There was no image of same-sex marriage in ancient Roman culture. The most frequent same-sex act in ancient Roman culture would be between boys and men, whether that be in bathhouses or slaves sleeping with their masters. The, the, the man of the home would have a slave that they would sleep with, and that would be a boy. Teachers sleeping with their pupils was very normal, and then temple prostitution as well. And all of these would have been very normal acts within Rome, and especially for the Gentiles to be engaging in while they're becoming Christians, because for them, it's a very normal part of life. Therefore, when the Romans heard Paul's words, they would most likely be thinking of these forms of same-sex acts. Now, I do want to make a quick point. The less frequent but present act that took place in the context of two adult men that would have extramarital relationships as well as adult women. So there's definitely is that aspect, but that's a very small percentage. Therefore, the argument that this text is against same-sex marriage is moot. There's no precedence in Rome for modern same-sex marriage. When people look at this passage as an argument against same-sex marriage or mutual same-sex relationships, they're inserting modern ideas into the Bible. So that's called an anachronism. It would be the same thing as thinking like Huckleberry Finn drove a powerboat down the Mississippi River, right? So that would be taking our own concept of being like, so how did Huck get down the river? They're like, he took a boat. He did not take a boat. He took a raft. That would be an anachronism. Taking our own concept of how I think of homosexuality, therefore I'm inserting it in the Bible. Very unlikely that ancient Roman culture would have that same idea, given the proliferation of pederasty and the proliferation of rape within that culture would have been very normal. Yeah, Brandon, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, they had complicated views of sexuality. There were a ton of different opinions then. So it's really hard to say, what is Paul exactly addressing? We don't know. But here's where the game changer was for me. I would like isolate these verses out and then look at the grammar and go, okay, well, it seems pretty clear that Paul is prohibiting any sort of same-sex sexual activity. Then as you know, I continued my studies and continued to realize that this was a letter written to a congregation that was spoken in one broad sweep. They didn't preach Romans over the course of 20 weeks or whatever. It was delivered by a messenger who would actually recite it, and it was Phoebe was the first person to preach Romans, uh, who's a female, so do with that what you will. You have a church that has Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians trying to figure out how to get along with each other because they really see God differently, they see the cultural expression of Christianity differently, and Paul's major ministry was to get groups that warred against each other into the same family to be one. That's the largest scope of what he was doing in his churches. Like, hey, Christ has changed the game. We are all one in Christ. All of us were in the same boat in terms of being violators of God's commandments and against his will, but he has extended grace to us and he has brought us into the family. So now figure out how to get along together. And Romans is one of those books that he writes to do that because he has two different groups and he calls them the weak and the strong that are having a hard time 
getting along. And so the opening of this letter includes this section where he is just ripping on the folly of the world, like the gross behaviors of all those outside to then turn it on his audience who were being judgmental. So what I want to do, I'm going to read this section because this is how it would have been delivered in one sitting. I'm not going to start at the beginning and read all the way through chapter 16 of this book, but this section matters because this is his point. It starts in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And again, this would be delivered. And so people would be like, yeah, absolutely. Like God's been revealed out there and they have no excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. It's like, yeah, look at all of them. They're taking the immortal God and they're turning them into little reptiles. Like, yeah, what a bunch of idiots. They're fools. They're fools. (laughs) Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Gross. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. They'd be like, amen. Amen. Yeah, Yeah. praise God. Because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Boo, gross. In the same way, the men who abandoned natural relations with women were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for the error. Yeah, good for them. They get their penalty already. Yeah, good. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would do what they ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. Yeah, look at them. They're like, it's about time somebody said something about this. Yes, yes, exactly. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey (laughs) their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. This is hyperbolic to the nth degree. These people are getting shredded by Paul. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also improve of those who practice them. Yeah, yeah, whoa, boo, yeah, look, there, it's so bad, they're even giving praise to the people that are doing it. And then, this is where our chapter stops, and so in English, we just stop, because we're like, oh, we read chapter one today, and then tomorrow we'll read chapter two. But no, it keeps going, and this is the point. He goes, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. At whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Oh, no. Boom. (laughs) Yeah. Like, drop your mic. Yeah. That, the audience would have been buttered up. Like, yeah, we're the good ones. We're so great. And look at the world around us. Look at the depravity of all of the human beings that are violating God's commandments and rejecting him and doing all the silly, foolish things. And Paul's like, yeah, yeah, stoking it, stoking it, stoking it. And then turns it on him. He's like, you guys do the same things. Don't judge. And that's the point. Yeah. And so what is this passage meant to do? But expose us as judgmental types who look at other people and go, oh, they're so bad and I'm so good. And Paul's like, we're all in that same boat of being quote unquote bad. But then there's good news. And that's the rest of the letter. What do you think Paul would do today if he were to see um, LGBTQ plus uh, humans that are mm-hmm. filled with the Holy Spirit? How do you think How do you think he would react? Yeah, it's a great question because he would do what I think he did then, which was encounter people who had the Holy Spirit, encounter people who displayed Christ's love and go, huh, yeah. that changes everything. Yeah. I used to think this way, but you know what? In the wake of the risen Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and God's unfolding plan in creation that I had formerly believed was really narrowly defined and now have realized is open to 
all the peoples. Huh. Interesting. I did not see that coming, but that's very Jesus-like. Welcome to the family, LGBT Christians. I should check myself for having previously been in ignorance, which, I mean, this is this is his language he talks about. He's like, I was the who's who of being, you know, the defender of God's word and then encounters Jesus and everything unravels. And who I thought was in, not necessarily in, and who I thought was out are in. And that just blew his mind. He changed his whole perspective. And I would say, Paul would do that today. If he encountered what we are seeing, he would do the same thing. That's his logic. The overall trajectory of God's inclusion of peoples that otherwise were believed to be on the outside would win. That Christ's love would win in the end. Grace has been extended to you guys too. Now get along. Amen. Stop arguing with each other. Yeah. You're making a mockery of us. Just please enjoy communion together in peace. Totally. Because Jesus is coming back. Totally. What main points do you want us all to leave here with today, Brandon? You can take the Bible seriously and be LGBT affirming. In fact, it's because I took the Bible seriously that I became LGBT affirming. <laughs> Plot twist. I don't expect everyone to change their minds. Certainly had the frustrations where I have conversations with people and it's just like, I don't know, the analogy that's been used that I think is great is like you're watching the sunset and trying to convince someone that it's actually the earth revolving around the sun. And they're like, no, the sun is the thing that's moving. And you're like, I don't know how to change your perspective on this because yeah, I know what you're seeing, but stop seeing that. It's, it's just really hard. But my point is like, you can explore the study of the Bible to the fullest. You can appreciate the Bible to the fullest and not have to then have a mismatch between what you believe about sexuality, or at least in terms of the broad brushstrokes of the legitimacy of LGBT Christians who can actually have loving relationships. Mm. That's great. One thing that I wanted to remind myself this week is that we are family. Not only here at Kindred, we're family, but we're a global church family. And so I'm sorry, especially if you're part of the LGBTQ community and you've been hurt, I'm sorry. And I also would like to challenge anybody that is maybe affirming or inclusive to not lose our grace and mercies for ourselves and for others as we're having maybe some tough conversations because we know that this is a heated topic and we're aware of the challenges within that. But God has given us his grace, not only to ourselves, to be patient with ourselves and have mercy for ourselves, but also has given us grace to extend to others even when they don't want to extend grace to us. So let's be good brothers and sisters to our community and love people well, even though they may not be super stoked about some of uh, some of the beliefs that we hold. That's very Jesus-like. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.